Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight is on Nicole Davies. Nicole has spent her career thus far at the intersection of education and creative tech in Boston, Massachusetts. She's currently Managing Director at the Institute for Creative Entrepreneurship at the Berklee College of Music. At Berkeley, Nicole helps instill an entrepreneurial mindset among both students and faculty, all with the goal to inspire, educate, and launch the next generation of creative entrepreneurs. Nicole is also director of the Institute's Open Music Initiative, which is working to create an open protocol for uniform identification of music creators and rights holders across the industry. Open Music believes that new technologies can be applied to radically simplify the way rights owners are identified and compensated, resulting in a sustainable business model for artists, entrepreneurs, and music businesses alike. Nicole shares a bit with us about her personal journey before diving deep into the work she's doing to help create a fair, equitable, and innovative 21st century music business. How are you doing? You know, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm hanging in there. Um, it's yeah. a pretty interesting, sort of unforeseen and yet um, very necessary time. Um, and obviously, when we first connected online um, and, you know, I signed up, I didn't, you know, n neither of us foresaw that um, sort of social movements and Black Lives Matter would be so very front and center. Um, and I'm thrilled, I think is probably the wrong word, but like, relieved and happy to be supporting it and being an ally, but it's exhausting um, and overwhelming for even a white person. <laughs> so yeah, trying to be a good ally, be a good worker and center my work sort of appropriately, be a good parent, um, be a good friend. So yeah, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of influx of information as I'm sure, you know, many are going through. Yeah. Where are you based geographically? Um, I'm in Boston. I live in the city of Boston in uh, Roslindale, which is sort of a residential neighborhood um, south of downtown. How have the protests and the movement manifested there, if at all? I mean, it's definitely been present. Um, I have two youngish children. And so, yeah, there's six and nine. And um, my nine-year-old is is quite like precocious and, and sort of aware. Um, and even my six-year-old is, um, you know, able to like handle complex conversations at his level. Um, we've gone to some protests with the kids. There's been some really impressive movements, especially coming out of a community organizer who's been doing the work in Boston for some time and, and sort of speaking truth to power and challenging Boston's leadership and literally sort of putting a seat on the stage or taking a seat at meetings where she wasn't invited, um, a woman, Monica Cannon-Grant. She started feeding families in Boston immediately after the pandemic and, and shutdown hit. So um, she led a really impressive movement. You know, I would say that the Boston police are not on the level of like Seattle, where Seattle is really trying to hit a new low and just committed to being the worst, it seems. But there's been troubling images for sure coming out of some of the protests and my family took a bike ride 
on Friday down actually to the Berkeley College campus. We went through the bike path and um, I had to explain to my children why there was National Guard soldiers with machine guns on their mother's workplace campus, um, just stationed all over the place. So yeah, it's, it's present. Yeah. You know, um, I don't know if we discussed this earlier when we were first communicating, but I'm, I'm in Seattle. Um, oh, oh, wow. Yeah. And um, I'm not from here. I moved out here a few years ago. Um, I'm from New England and lived in New York for about 20 years. Um, but like you, over the weekend, I went out and did some exploring and um, went through downtown. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's just disturbing to see in a, um, in a modern American city um, that we would have barricades and um, you know, all the stores are boarded up, but as you said at the beginning, you know, in a way it's necessary, you know, I think everybody expresses the caveat of not liking to see unrest and violence and things of that nature, but, uh, it would be very hard for me to sit here as a middle-aged white man and experience that frustration that would lead to that. Um, so I can't really, um, I, I, I'm just in no position really to, to barely comment, Never mind, you know, judge. So yeah. It, yeah. Just. And my brother's in Seattle. Um, and so he has obviously, you know, been sharing sort of what's been going on and it's, it's really troubling um, and scary. A lot of like the tear gassing and, um, but yeah, uh, my father's Bolivian and I grew up in like a white suburb of Boston. And so I like never like totally felt like I fit in and like, you know, I'm certainly like white passing, um, you know, half Latina, and so I don't know, it's just sort of the concept of like not and, and like in a very like waspy suburb, like didn't feel like I fit in or people would be like, oh, where are you from? Which like now in Boston or like traveling, like it's, you know, I would never sort of be um, looked at, you know, as as non-white. But um, growing up, I was and my dad was like, you know, short and brown. Um, and, and still is. Um, and so <laughs> you didn't get taller and paler. <laughs> still has not grown. <laughs> the, the, you know, the Boston winters have not like helped with his tan, but, um, yeah. So, um, so, you know, I guess the concept is sort of like not fitting in and, and sort of like not, um, and, you know, of just sort of being aware of like what the like normal is or what sort of like the, the mainstream is and, um, not quite fitting or, or feeling like you can um, conform to that. And so I guess on some level, it's a bit of a relief to now like just be able to have conversations about race and justice, like in um, sort of polite company, because <laughs> yeah. it was never really like there was a place for it. And then there was all of the other places. Um, and that's always felt really uncomfortable to me. So the only you know, I guess silver lining for me is that it's entering other conversations where I think it really belongs. Yeah, I, I appreciate you saying it that way because I've experienced a very similar feeling where in the past, rightly or wrongly, I've had the mental model of like the time and the place basically and, and yeah. what, what's, what's appropriate for what venues and um, never felt entirely comfortable with where the boundary would be. But that's very much flip-flopped for me over the last week or 10 days. And now I feel remiss and negligent and um, irresponsible if I don't have these conversations and if I don't ask 
my colleagues from maybe underrepresented groups or people that I'm having these podcast conversations with, if I don't ask them very directly about what's going on for them and what they're experiencing. So in that way, yeah, that is a positive, I think, to be taken from this is that we can, we can put some of that stuff aside and just have these conversations with yeah. each other and not dance around it. So, yeah. Um, I, it's a bit random, but have you ever um, been in like a space or an event with someone from New Zealand or Australia and seen how they open the, the events where they like note the land that they're on as native land and sort of pay tribute to like whatever native people were in that. And it's, it's like a, it's just like done. Um, and like, I got a Courtney Barnett um, record from like the last band camp, um, I guess like the May 1st one. And that at the back in the liner notes, it talks about where it was recorded and that that's native land. And so I think it's an interesting way to like open up conversations that like aren't about like, you know, the record, it's not a social justice record. It's just like, it's just Courtney Barnett. But I think it's a really interesting way to like center that and just sort of have that as like a, blanket this is how we begin things is like we know people that were displaced out of this land or what this land is yeah i actually um that's interesting you bring that up because i had not experienced that until i moved out here and it's not done 100 percent of the time consistently but it is done out here in seattle especially oh, wow. at more independent um events i've been to film screenings um a couple of smaller concerts where that 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 um, moment has been taken and, and you're right it's a, it's a um in the context or in the in the events where it is done it's clear that it's not necessarily matter of fact but it's part of the just it's it's it, it would be part and parcel of the national anthem at a sporting event like it's yeah it's done the noted part of the, the program if you will um i didn't realize that that was uh that was something australia and new zealand acknowledges that yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's specific. I don't. I don't really know where it came from, but um, I like it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate you giving me some insight into, um, at least an initial insight into your background. How did your dad end up outside of Boston? <laughs> yeah. So he um, he's a Bolivian. Um, he grew up in the Bolivian city of Cochabamba, Bolivia. Um, he was the youngest of three and there was sort of this like movement at the time i guess in chicago they needed doctors and so there was a lot there's just sort of this like movement to bring doctors from bolivia educate them in the united states and then i think they were supposed to go back but a lot of them stayed in the united states so my father's older siblings were studying in the u.s um, his father died when he was really young and so um his mom moved he was about 10 um his mom brought him to chicago from bolivia and so he grew up in chicago he went from being federico to fred <laughs> and um you know his mom had to teach herself english and, and get a job and get used to sort of you know life in a completely new place um so he did that um he wanted to study film so he was at usc met my mom um, there in LA. She was born in LA. And um, so that's where I was born. I think that, you know, there's sort of just the, the desire to strike out and have sort of a new space for themselves. All of the family at that point was in Los Angeles. And so uh, when I was six, we moved from Los Angeles to Boston, um, or, you know, north of Boston to the suburbs in Hamilton. Um, and that's where 
they've been. Good school system and, and you know, quiet streets, et cetera, and, and, you know, sort of idyllic little suburb life. <laughs> yeah, very aspirational. Yeah. Um, what did your parents do? What were they, what, what was their, uh, what were their careers while you were growing up? You know, everybody had been sort of on the medical track for my father and he I think was sort of pre-med and it really wasn't the right track for him. And so he ended up leaving college and got a job working in like data accounting and, and sort of business management for a local travel company. And um, he sort of has taught himself and, and sort of navigated his career. And so now he works in sales and he does a lot with like satellite antennas um, internationally, a lot of um sales relationships across Latin America with like broadcast technology and, you know, but it's been a bit of a meandering career for him. And he sort of had to like find his path. Um, my mom, you know, growing up was more or less stay at home mom and now works in uh, criminal justice, which is, you know, an uh, interesting <laughs> um, career to be in right now. Um, works a lot with victim witnesses and um, supporting victim witnesses in the uh, county where she is, but um, is definitely sort of an artist, I think, at heart. Um, so that I think was a big part. My Her mom was an artist and, and that's always been a big part of our life. Um, yeah, I think both of them have sort of had like meandering and I don't know who does have like a sort of singular career path these days anymore. Yeah, I always envied those people, the, the kids who knew in high school what they were going to be and then they went and did it. <laughs> <laughs> I could never relate to that. <laughs> I yeah, can barely understand yeah. now what I'm going to do. <laughs> in retrospect, it makes sense, but um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I guess there is a little, there's always some revision, some revisionist history to, to the career path. But so what role did music and the arts play um, throughout your childhood? And, and as you were growing up, was, was there a presence? Was it around you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my grandmother was an incredible painter, you know, frankly, wild to like sort of come to terms with this. But she, as a teenager, worked in an internment camp, a Japanese internment camp, because she was in Los Angeles. And so she um, worked in one of the post offices there. And she spent a lot of time with Japanese people, Japanese families, and learned flower arranging and a lot of sort of like artistic traditions. She was um, actually a public school teacher in Venice Beach. Um, and so I, you know, I have no like real um, knowledge of whether this is true, but I like to think that like a lot of the Z boys and the, you know, the Dogtown um, sort of skate originators, like those would have been her students like back then and, and that whole scene. Um, but, you know, similar, I guess, you know, that was that was her job, but she always was an artist um, and always, you know, when we were little, we spent a lot of time at her house. And so there was always like just like creative, artistic opportunities, music. And she would always just make sure that like we had like, you know, musical instruments and art supplies. And um, her garden was incredible. She had all sorts of like fruits and vegetables that you can't you know, you can barely still now find in the stores, but she just was a really curious person. And I think, um, you know, inspired me, I think a lot to sort of be the person or, or sort of um, follow some of the past that I have. And even the way sort of like I bring um, resources into my family and my home and sort of what I make available to my kids. Um, I think that that sort of led that a lot. So yeah, the arts were always just sort of 
present, not necessarily mm-hmm. something that I sought as a career, but just something that like you have in your life as sort of a base foundation. Mm-hmm. And um, music more particularly, was it, was there music played in your house? Were there, you know, you mentioned your grandmother had instruments, but did you grow up playing an instrument? Did your parents so, <laughs> um, my mom plays the piano and um, I am a very stubborn person and I like to teach myself things. Um, I'm similar to my dad in that way. And so um, I sort of, you know, dabbled in instruments. Um, I played, it's a very sort of like Lisa Simpson image. I was, you know, a small kid with like a large saxophone through (laughs) some of elementary and middle school. Um, That wasn't the right fit for me. And it wasn't until college and I just started, um, I took like, I audited a a guitar class. And so, um, I mean, there's, you know, instruments hanging behind me. um, But I would not say that I'm you know, like, for example, in Berkeley Company, I would not say that I'm musician. Um, <laughs> I, I really enjoy it. Um, and I like putting, I like sort of forcing myself to put music out there, learning how to play songs and, and getting them comfortable enough um, to, you know, put out there on social media or whatever, just because, you know, sort of that concept of being familiar or comfortable with failure and like messiness. But my coworker, said something about like, oh, you know, I didn't know that you play guitar or something, but it auto-corrected to okay guitar. And so like, that's, <laughs> I don't play guitar. I okay guitar is sort of, <laughs> that's what I say. That's amazing. What is it in your background um, academically that led you to Berkeley? Um, you know, what were you preparing um, for a life in? <laughs> yeah, so I thought I was going to be in, uh, I mean, you know, environmental education, um, then I thought I was going to be an architect. Thank goodness for internships, because I think that those sort of show you either a career path that's great or when you're like, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> um, so I went to a tiny liberal arts college on an island in Maine, College of the Atlantic. The only major there is human ecology. At the time, there was 250 students. I think now there may be up to like 400 or 500 students. Um, and um, the whole program of study is extremely self-directed and interdisciplinary and you have to take courses from all different course areas or, or study areas. So my sort of field of study or path, I spent a long time, I did a study abroad in the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico and I spent a long time returning there um, and studying sort of this, the history of that region and, and this really sort of interesting history of the Mayan people and their ongoing Um, war with the sort of Spanish and then Mexican government. Um, And there was still sort of bastions of Mayan people in villages that didn't necessarily um, consider the caste war, which is what it was called, um, to be over. And sort of still were like these these Mayan little armies and and, um, collectives. Um, And so the history of that region was really interesting. And I ended up studying sort of the indigenous or autochthonous place-based architecture in that area. Um, And, you know, (laughs) is there a through line or like a a connection to my current work? You know, if you look back, perhaps I left, I taught uh, middle school Spanish for a year in my old middle school after 
college because um, I needed a job and not a lot of Spanish speakers in Hamilton. So I was able to secure that job pretty easily. I taught alongside my old middle school teachers, which was a trip. Um, and then I started working in Boston in youth development work um, in the Latino population, mostly Puerto Rican and Dominican. So that was sort of, I had done a lot of like activist um, work in college, you know, as one does. Um, but that was sort of my first formal introduction to community organizing, youth development work, and, and sort of community-informed programming. And so, you know, since then, my work has sort of been this intersection of community organizing and social justice, um, creativity, um, and technology and innovation. Um, and so I went from that work in the community in the small community organization to then working um, what was then called the Intel Computer Clubhouse Network. I think now it's called the Clubhouse Network, but it's a network of 100 or so after-school programs throughout the world um, that use creative tech as an empowerment tool for young people. Um, and they're in South Africa, in uh, Taiwan, India, the Philippines, Australia, New Zealand, across Latin America. Um, and that was my first sort of introduction to what I now understand to be called design thinking or sort of that iterative creative process, you know, but I think what was interesting is that like I'd been really just absorbed with indigenous architecture, place-based architecture and how people design buildings and spaces based on the place and the people in those buildings or that are going to inhabit those buildings. And so, you know, looking back at um, a lot of the work and observations and learning and reading that I did then, it's interesting to see like, oh, that's, that's design thinking. Like, okay, this is not as novel a concept as many sort of, you know, design thinking has sort of become this like fancy, really like buzzy word. But, um, you know, I, it's also the same as community organizing, like coming up with solutions and programs that are based on the people that are, you know, going to most be impacted. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, now I, I bring that work to Berkeley. Um, after the Clubhouse Network, I, I came here Panos, who I work with, Panos Panay, he's a Berkeley alum. He founded uh, Berkeley's Institute for Creative Entrepreneurship after having um, founded and, and um, built for 15 years and then selling Sonic Bids. And so he had been building the Institute for a year um, and he brought me in to do some program development and delivery. We started a high school program. We did a trip to Silicon Valley for students. Um, and since then, we've we've built the institute uh, to what it is. Kicked off the Open Music Initiative with with partners of ours, um, and yeah, it's been a pretty incredible five or so years here. Before we finish uh, threading that needle about your work at Berkeley, I, I just wanted to um, there was I wanted to explore something you mentioned a minute ago about sort of the Mayan communities that that have not ever really closed the door on the caste mm. war. What does that manifest in the form of like insurgency or is it a mindset? I think it's more a mindset and I've been thinking and um, I actually wrote and put something up on Medium um, yesterday about this because it's just been sort of front of mind. And, and that's, I don't know, that for me, that's how writing works. It like builds up and then it just sort of like, I don't know, <laughs> just sort of explodes out and um, especially writing and creating with kids in the house where there's like no coffee shop that I can go to <laughs> right now. That's sort of what creativity looks like in my life. So anyways, I've been, I've been thinking about this village and I, I lived with this 
shaman um, who is incredible, but his family sort of lineage tracked back through the caste war and his family had been sort of instrumental in, in leading the Mayan insurgency or the, the Mayan army. So to answer your question, they <laughs> did not see themselves as Mexican. When you spoke about Mexico, so, I mean, if you know where Cancun is, it's like two hours outside of Cancun is where these folks lived, um, down like a dirt road. Nobody had cars. There was like a, a combi, a little like colectivo bus that would go out that you would hear leaving the town at like 6 a.m. and then would come back. So that was the, or like I would hitchhike and then um, ride in with the Coca-Cola delivery truck. Um, but it was like five miles down a dirt road. And when you talked about Mexico, they were thinking like Mexico City. They didn't know or look at themselves as Mexican, I don't think that they really looked at themselves as even from Quintana Roo, which is the state, or as Yucatecan, which is the region. Um, you know, I, I don't think that a lot of like change or, you know, certainly like there was people that worked in like pig farms and, and the hospitality area of Cancun. Of course, like they were going there. Most people were bilingual Spanish and Mayan. And I assume that a lot has changed since I was there 15 to 20 years ago, 15 18 years ago, I, I assume that a lot has changed just by, I mean, I, you know, mobile technology hadn't really arrived anywhere. Um, you know, at that point in those like early 2000s, it was just starting to kind of be commonplace. And I assume that mobile technology has changed a lot. I mean, they had, um, there was one person who had a cable TV subscription. And so you'd be sitting in the house and the channel would change. And you're like, oh, who, who changed the channel? They're like, oh, Don René. And you're like, but I, he's, what? You're like, Don René, he changed the channel. And we're like, oh, okay. So he's like a, a block away. Um, <laughs> so, um, right. you know, there was contact with the outside world, of course. But um, they were very much, I think, still in a lot of ways, their own people and community and culture. And they had contact with other Mayan villages and they would come um I mean, this is not the point of your podcast is like the history of the Mayan no, people, but um, there had been sort of this, this talking cross that had appeared in the tree in um, the city of Carrillo Puerto. And um, so they would go back there and have various like ceremonies. So they were connected, you know, to other Mayan villages and families in the region. So yeah, for, for whatever reason, the history and culture, there just really, um, and, and, you know, the, the sort of history of colonialism and assimilation and acculturation um, just really caught my interest and um, continues to kind of stick with me for whatever reason. In the remaining pockets of the Mayan population, is there a, uh, is there a governmental structure or a tribal structure? How are they yeah, that's, that's a good question. I mean, I, I know at the time um, and the way the, where I met this Mayan priest, there was always a, a guard at the Talking Cross, um, which is this space in, um, is it in Carrillo Puerto or it's in, yeah, it's in, in uh, this city outside of Cancun called Felipe Carrillo Puerto. And so there's always, at the time, there was always a guard there and then they would hold various ceremonies at, um, you know, specific important dates around the year. So that was certainly sort of one organization. And I, I think that that was sort of the remaining. And I think it would be really interesting, I mean, Quite frankly, I don't know if the priest that I lived with is still alive. Yeah, he was old when I was there. I don't think he really knew how old he was. 
And so um, it'll be in, it would be interesting to know whether that's still something that has been passed down through generations um, and whether, you know, the teenagers that are probably now in their 20s and 30s, whether that's something that they're continuing. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for that. Um, yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Can you uh, describe for me what the Institute is? What's the Institute for Creative Entrepreneurship and, and what is its mission within Berkeley? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, Panos, as I mentioned, he's a Berkeley alum. He was uh, the first graduating class actually of Berkeley's music business department and was there when that department was, or that program was founded by Don Gorder, who's retiring this year. So um, it's been pretty amazing to see Don build the program. You know, he left, he started Sonic Bids, which is at the time sort of this innovative idea to instead of doing press kits that you have to like fax and mail around, you can put them online and, and book your gigs online. And he was looking for his next step. Um, he'd been in close contact with Roger Brown, who's the president here at Berkeley. I think Roger was on the board at Sonic Bids and, and Panos had been involved um, as part of the leadership, a sort of advisors at, at Berkeley as well. And so Roger said, hey, you know, why don't you sort of take a break from the fast paced startup life and, you know, come teach a course or two um, on entrepreneurship. Why don't you run this Institute? And um, Panos, uh, if you were to meet him is a high energy sort of full throttle person in all aspects of his life. And so, uh, you know, the joke was that he was supposed to like, just kind of chill out and um, take a breather and he definitely did anything but that. <laughs> so he started out with um, one or two courses. Um, he did a lot of like talking and learning to other folks in the entrepreneurship education world. So he went over to the D school. He made a lot of connections and I think already had a lot of connections at MIT. Early on in his time at Berkeley, he um, just sort of um, coincidentally met Michael Hendricks, who's now global design director at IDEO. Um, and is based in the Cambridge office across the river from Berkeley. And so I think that, you know, out of all of those creative collisions, um, the Institute has sort of become what it is today. And, and like I said, I came on a year into it. There was a few courses. He was holding um, these events. And so, you know, now what the Institute is, it's, it's still very true to sort of Roger's vision. I think Roger's charged upon us, which is to infuse the startup mindset throughout the Berkeley community. We're different in that we're not, you know, just for a select group of students, we're not an accelerator an incubator, whether where you're either in or out. Um, so students will come to me and say like, Hey, I want to be part of the Institute. How do I join? And I say, actually, you already are <laughs> um, just by virtue of being at Berkeley, um, you know, we had this really interesting conversation with our advisors early on. And that's another thing Panos did a great job of is assembling this group of advisors that I think helped shape and, and helped ask the right questions. And somebody asked the question, you know, do you want to be sort of in this one sort of specific part of the institution or do you want to be in the bedrock? And um, we have done the work and, and continue to you know, try to do the work in Berkeley to be sort of throughout the bedrock. If you look at the Silicon Valley student trip that we take every year, this was our fifth year doing that. We go, you know, Facebook, YouTube, Apple, PlayStation, uh, Skywalker, Dolby, you know, we, we go all up and down the, the peninsula. Um, 
you know, that student trip has been the first one and the only at this point that includes Berkeley online students. So we look at sort of this, this broader uh, Berkeley community. Um, it includes conservatory students, so dance, theater, classical music, Berkeley online, Berkeley Valencia in uh, Spain, which is predominantly master's students. And then even with the Berkeley students, it's really important for us to have students of all majors and programs, songwriting, music therapy, film scoring, electronic production and design, and music production, of course, music business. So with our programs, we really try to impact and connect with as many students as possible and um, sort of infuse this idea that a musical training or an artistic training is sort of analogous to an entrepreneurial training and that the instincts and mindsets that you develop as an artist are the same ones that entrepreneurs practice. Um, and sort of by virtue of having trained as an artist, you have also trained yourself to be entrepreneurial and then just making the connections and starting to see. Um, and then, you know, some students do want to start their own businesses and be entrepreneurs and, and experiment and innovate. So we also make spaces and create opportunities for them. Um, and then finally, we've been a bit of a sandbox, both for the Berkeley community. So we are often, <laughs> when you have an idea at Berkeley, we have the reputation of like, if nobody else will say yes, we will. And so it's not, it's not the worst reputation to have. So because of that, we got to partner with um, Erin Barra, who's a Berkeley alum, a faculty. She um, was the founder of um, Beats by Girls. She's been really involved in women in music, and she wanted to do a study in the U.S. on the sort of the socioeconomic landscape of women working in the music industry. Um, this was before Me Too, and she had a really hard time getting any kind of footing or support within Berkeley. And, you know, I think that um, a creative entrepreneurial world, a landscape, is not really as um, abundant and, and sort of fully actualized unless it includes everybody and unless sort of everybody has equal opportunity to engage. And so it felt really important to examine and amplify sort of where women currently are in the music industry. So we put that research report out. Um, so we've been a sandbox and sort of an experimental place for the Berkeley community to try out different programs and then sort of spin them back out to the mothership. And then also for the sort of industry as a whole, we've done some really interesting experiments, whether it was like designing um, an AI uh, music photo program with Royal Caribbean where uh, vacationers could put in their photos and it would sort of read the emotions of the photos and spit out um, algorithmic music. So um, yeah, we, we do a little bit of everything. Wow. And what is, uh, what is Rethink Music? <laughs> that is a good question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that predates me, and it actually predates the Institute. So, you know, I, I've obviously spoken about my career and education path. I um, love music, total music fan, um, but I did not study music business. I'm not a... Um, IP lawyer. <laughs> I'm not a musician. Um, and so this whole industry and, and sort of um, network was new to me. And so one of the first things that I 
was a part of when I joined the Institute was this Rethink Music event. It was awesome. There was a bunch of interesting folks there that um, I still follow or have sort of seen the evolution of their careers and um, movements and, you know, interesting sort of blockchain startups that have since fizzled and other companies that now exist. Um, that was where I first heard Karan Gandhi speak. Um, we had uh, Imogen Heap, I think, Skyped in. Um, so it was, it was a really interesting event. And, and so Rethink Music, I think, was originally founded to sort of rethink the music industry, look at the future of the music industry. And it was, I think, very much a think tank. Um, like I said, it sort of, um, it predated me and it predated the Institute, but the Institute, I think, was a good sort of home for it. But I was, I definitely remember being a bit shocked at um, the passion and in some cases, um, acrimony between folks sort of debating music rights and, and metadata handling. I didn't um, know that it was such a contentious topic until a few months into my time at Berkeley. Um, so you know, Rethink Music gave birth to a report that we did that also ruffled some feathers on um, this fair music report where we looked at payment streams. Person, Alan Bargfried, who was head of Rethink Music at the time, worked with students to do this report and work with the data sets that they were able to get their hands on, which understandably were not a ton, because again, that's kind of the point right around the opacity and imperfect um, nature of a lot of the data sets around metadata and, and payments and rights holder information. But we published this. Like I said, I think we ruffled some feathers. The data wasn't perfect, but I think that we um, knew that to a degree. And um, what we ultimately saw, um, and Panos, Michael Hendricks sort of bringing in this design thinking mentality, and then um, Dan Harple, who had worked in sort of the open protocols and, and data space, along with some partners at MIT, a colleague Berkeley at Berkeley, George Howard, and um, you know a lot of other partners from the industry. Ultimately, we saw that as an education institution, as an arts and artist-centered institution, we could be a convener. Um, and I think that you know, a lot of credit goes to those folks in, in seeing that um, an open music initiative sort of was born out of that, of how can we convene the industry rather than sort of, you know, poking holes or poking the bear, how can we be a convener towards interoperability in education? And so that's, thank you for setting that up so well. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> talk to me about open music initiative, please. I, yeah. I'd love to understand not only the work you're doing, but how you're interfacing with the industry. Yeah, so um, actually I was just looking at the date because um, June 13th, uh, 2016 was when we um, sort of officially launched and um, it's easy right now at home to like lose track of what the actual date is. So, <laughs> um, uh, so we're coming up on our four year anniversary actually. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so Open Music Initiative, like I said, you know, when that happened, we had this idea and um, I think sort of born out of a lot of those conversations that um, Panos had with, um, you know, Michael and George, folks at MIT, to be this convener and to bring the industry together. And I think that that was also sort of part and parcel with a lot of um, conversations that he probably had with various industry companies that had relationships with Berkeley. 
we, you know, made sort of appeals to all of these various people to come together um, with a focus on music and arts and artists and to commit to coming together to look at um, solutions for accurate and efficient rights holder and metadata um, and payment transfer information, which doesn't sound sexy at all, um, but is incredibly important. Um, and with that, there's also sort of the, the education and the innovation piece. So working, you know, we're an education institution, we're artist focused. And so how can we also be a convener around education, intellectual property education for artists? You know, like I said, like I'm completely self-taught like in this and, and have just sort of absorbed it over the years. I should not be more knowledgeable on this than a musician, for example. You know, the musicians need to be empowered with this information and it shouldn't be made to be as sort of opaque and intimidating as it often is. And then innovation, you know, I think that, I don't, I don't think it's controversial to say that the music industry has not always embraced new technologies or developments. Um, and I say that still as a relative outsider. So I feel um, a little cautious in saying it because it feels a little bit like, you know, poking holes. But I think that what we hope is that we can be sort of a future proof opportunity to innovate and experiment with technologies that are going to impact the industry one way or another. And how can we be a part of that and innovate it with the technologies rather than sort of like in spite of or in reaction to. So we're now 300 plus members. We, you know, for all, all sides and, um, you know, end to end of the music supply or value chain um, and, you know, some adjacent companies as well. So from point of creation to distribution and sort of all in between. We were slated to have a meeting in June, actually, this month to sort of ratify a set of bylaws and, and become a standalone member-supported organization. Obviously, that was put on pause a bit. But what's ha what has been really exciting is that we have continued um, the technical development. So we've been working on an implementation of, of the protocols and of sort of the technical values and specifications that we recommend. And so we've been working with MIT. There's a Berkeley master's students that are um, have computer science backgrounds that have been working to develop this along with others. Um, and so we have a team um, of Berkeley undergrads, MIT researchers, developers and coders, my colleague, George Howard, and um, others. We've, it's been really sort of this interesting grassroots collection of folks building a music licensing platform for Berkeley students um, that's going to be sort of end-to-end -end creator to consumer direct no intermediaries where Berkeley students will have control over their data their attribution the tagging the pricing the licensing etc and we're going to be um, in the next few weeks sort of finishing the first working sort of uh, version we shared a very rough alpha in November, um, but this will be the first working version that we're excited to share with our members. So barring sort of major governance movements, one of the things I'm really excited about is that we still have something where we can demonstrate rather than sort of talk about, um, you know, show not tell what our vision is and, and how it might work and, and start to invite companies to plug in little by little as well. 
you mentioned at the beginning of your um, of your answer, you used the word important, and I I wonder I I don't want to um, I don't want to presuppose that our listeners um, do understand the importance of the work. What what um, what problem or need are are you solving or addressing, and, and why is it important at this particular point? Why is the work of the initiative important? Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting and almost kind of going back to our, our initial conversation right around like it now being okay to talk about race and oppression and injustice, you know, the more that I learned about uh, the music industry and sort of the, the way that it works, um, I'm sort of increasingly flabbergasted if I'm being honest, you know, like if you were to reverse engineer something, you'd never be like, this is definitely how we should do it. Like this is, this is, you know, going to be something that works where, um, you know, I, I know that a lot of folks um, have put many years and, and many years of effort into making that supply chain and making the transfer of data and payment information um, and rights holder information more fluid. And I want to, I do really want to give credit to that. I was, I had the sort of pleasure and honor of being on a panel at the Library of Congress back in December with a crew of men talking about the work that had been put in um, on many different efforts, um, GDPR, uh, no, sorry, uh, the Global Rights Data, not GDPR, I'm getting my acronyms mixed up, the Global Rights Database, um, the work that they'd done on, on DDEX. And I, you know, it was interesting. I understood, I think, in that moment, the passion and sort of the reason for the high emotions because they had been putting in work for a long time and trying to solve what's a very, very difficult problem to solve. And, you know, specifically to kind of like make it really simple. My last name has an apostrophe. Um, and actually, Nicole's my middle name. <laughs> um, my, my legal name is Elizabeth. Um, and so if we were to just look at if I was a musical artist that had um, intellectual property to my name, um, and forget, like, even if I had, like, an artist name or something, if I was just, you know, Nicole Davies with an apostrophe, imagine all of the different ways that I might appear in a system. Because, again, like, legally, my name is Elizabeth Nicole Davies, and a lot of computers, like, don't take apostrophes, etc. So imagine all of the different ways that I would appear in a computer. And, and I appear in that way when I go to the bank or to the doctor or the dentist or whatever. Like, yeah, I, I never know who I am. <laughs> um, and so... Um, my passport says something different than my driver's license. It's complicated. And so um, imagine even just for me trying to get seen and identified correctly in every single database as far as what I own, you know, how much of my music was played in a certain place and how much I'm owed. And knowing that every entity along that supply chain from like the, you know, the production, the label, the composition or the publisher the distribution, the streaming services, um, and then the collection societies. Imagine everybody sort of having a different way of organizing their information and then trying to match those up. And DDEX has done a ton of work in standardizing a lot of the file formats and the ways that that information is collected. I think that there's still a lot of work to be done and um, the work of DDEX is um, highly technical and is not easy for smaller companies and startups to connect to. And so when I say that this is important, um, it's important because artists need to have control over how their music is being used, 
knowing if their payments are accurate, being able to access that money in a timely way. You know, um, myself with a salary, I'm able to go to the bank and say, this is my salary. It's dependable. Here's the transparency of sort of what it is. And so, um, you know, can I qualify for a mortgage? How does a musician do that right now with sort of the um, varied reports and the latency of payment reports. And then, you know, like I said, going back to sort of this question of, of social justice, justice or even racism, when we look at, you know, so often the artists that have, you know, gone into musical careers and tried to make a living, um, artists need to have control over not only how their music is used, whether the payments are accurate, but also their sort of reputation and attribution as artists. So even, you know, for independent artists um, starting out, while the payments and the amount of the payments may not be the most important part, you want to know, um, are you being attributed correctly for your work so that others can discover you? And, you know, as somebody who deeply loves music, and it's just such an important part of my life. I want the music ecosystem to continue to support independent and emerging artists. And so, you know, we want to, and, and we believe that it's, it's sort of more than time as far as the technologies that exist, that it sort of, it shouldn't be these databases that aren't able to talk to each other or where errors are sort of still allowed to happen. So we've been working with folks at MIT and we've been working with the industry and, um, one of the things that I'm incredibly proud of is I think it's always been a pretty, um, you know, comparatively um, congenial group when um, different industry stakeholders come together within the Open Music Initiative. This past November was particularly warm and um, there was just really some great consensus and, and to see all of these companies who have been coming to these meetings and who've been a part of this initiative for years um, affirmed that they wanted to see open music initiatives sort of become this organization and that this was something that um, they were interested, efforts that they were interested in supporting in the long term was really fulfilling. And I, I think it was for a lot of people. I mean, I saw a lot of smiles and like hugs and, and backslapping from a group of people that often like to argue and debate. <laughs> and is the aim of the infrastructure or the architecture protocol, however you refer yeah. to the initiative technical implementation, is the aim to become a global infrastructure or is it a licensable? It's complex. And like I said, I don't have like a, a technical background in this. So, but I think it's, I can explain it sort of in two different ways. So I think one is recommendations on what the architecture should look like and working with DDEX and other efforts in this space. Obviously the Mechanical Licensing Collective is now part of the conversation, working with efforts that are already out there to get good data in and to um, support good data transfer and good payment information transfer. How can we put together a set of rules so that the information that should be easily transferred or public is able to be transferred in a streamlined effective, efficient, um, and more rapid way. So that's one thing is just working on sort of the, you know, the not necessarily the architecture, but the rules and the guidelines for the architecture. And then the other piece that we 
Berkeley and MIT were doing, and this is where that platform comes into play, is that a lot of that's abstract. And I think that we're seeing that in this conversation, right, where, you know, even as I'm, I'm saying that, it's, it's hard to kind of see and imagine. And so what, um, with a lot of credit to uh, Thomas Ogiorno and Eric Skase at MIT, and then my colleague George Howard at, at Berkeley, they became really impatient with the talk and they wanted to make and do and so they went um, and sketched out this idea for what we're now calling RADAR, which is an acronym. And I think that the words that make up the acronym have now sort of escaped everybody um, <laughs> as they do. But uh, RADAR is the music licensing platform that I was mentioning where um, Berkeley student music is put in, the metadata is um, captured from the Berkeley students entering it. It's DDEX compliant they can price and set the terms of their license for their songs. Um, there's an entire intellectual property education sort of module as part of the uploading process. So they, just by virtue, the same way that like in Squarespace or TurboTax or QuickBooks, you have to kind of learn a few things as you're putting your information and it helps you. But it also says like, do you want to know what, um, you know, what this tax code means or do you want to know whether you need this type of certification and you're like I don't know let me click and see so we're sort of using that that same type of user experience where you have to start to learn what the different copyrights are that a song and that a song has the two copyrights and, and what that means and whether you own both of them um, so they go through this intellectual property education process they upload their song they set the terms and it becomes available for license and then on the consumer side we're working with Leslie University, which is um, based in Cambridge, right near here. Um, and then we'll start opening up to other colleges. Visual media students, filmmakers, animation, video game designers can license the music directly from Berkeley students. And these are students that are gonna go on to, you know, be scoring at Skywalker and PlayStation and Marvel. You know, these are, it's, it's Berkeley. Um, and so, you know, film students and others get access to the music and there's this direct creator to consumer. We're not a third party. We're not trying to sell the data. We're not trying to make a profit. Our aim for this platform is one, to sort of show what an interoperable ecosystem could look like to our members. And that's where the plugging in starts to take place. And then the other is to educate and provide career sovereignty to Berkeley students to start putting the power of data and identity and attribution and reputation in their hands and to kind of help them understand what that means. And so the, the interoperability piece comes into play, you know, following the open music protocol guidelines, what we start being able to do is say, okay, well, you've designed a wallet, um, for example, or you've designed a really interesting way of capturing metadata at the point of creation um, through a digital audio workstation. How can you be part of the supply chain in the same way that, you know, train tracks or Lego pieces come together? how can these companies start plugging into this sort of demo that, that we've built? But it's, I mean, it's a demo um, with a real purpose that we see as taking off. It's not just a demo for demo's sake. So ultimately um, is, a, is one potential manifestation that products become OMI compliant. Is that sort of. Yeah, that's a, that's yeah, a great okay. way. And thank you for um, sort of working that through with us. Cause I, or with me, cause I, I understand that, um, you know, like I said, even for me, it's a bit complex and it's been a steep learning curve. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, our platform radar is going to have a sort of little tagline that says like powered by open music. And so if you are 
open music compliant and we've seen companies um, sort of in their startup phase already sort of designing with that in mind, then it's going to be easy to plug in, you know, the same way that like when you get out of a Lyft or an Uber, all of that information is automatically known. Like, you know, the company knows where you just went, your bank account has been debited, all of that is automatic. There's no reason that we can't be sort of bringing payments to artists and um, information on song usage into the 21st century. Okay. Well, it's interesting. You, you know, you, you used an analogy um, around, you know, the time to talk about race and social justice and now the time to have some of these other, to apply it to this conversation about what you're working on. But I, I also, the other analogy I think is that people talk about um, sort of how did we end up here? And I think it's less, it's less applicable today, but, Certainly, the system was designed to, to be opaque, right? Like, yeah, yeah, purposefully, a hundred percent. Purposeful, and and I don't think that's a controversial statement, whether you're inside or outside the industry at this point. Again, I don't think the system's necessarily designed to perpetuate that today. And as someone who's been both on the inside and the outside of these organizations, um, it's just the it's the edifice that's been built up on top of seventy yeah. years of that. Yeah, like completely. That. Um, and it's really hard to tell the difference sometimes between malfeasance and like incompetence or tradition <laughs> or um, uh, I, I do yeah. wonder, I've, I, I want to be mindful of your time, but I, I have sort of one other question as it relates to OMI, which is, and, and, and you may not have total visibility into this, but what, what are the solutions around legacy data? You know, you mentioned the variations yeah. of your last name. I think of like Neil Young and Crazy Horse with the ampersand yeah, yeah. or the and or Beyonce. Um, yeah, yeah. How, how will how will how will these large corporations with you know a hundred years of, of accumulated often contradictory metadata, how will they ever catch up? I mean, I, I think of course it's a complicated question, and, and we are starting our use case with new data and new artists, right? So we have um, sort of evaded that. Having said that, I think that. Um, so open music is, is blockchain agnostic and I'm not going to sort of um, even pretend that I'm the person to explain what blockchain is. Um, but when I say blockchain agnostic, mo both meaning like that we don't recommend or require that anybody uses blockchain or we don't require like any specific blockchain. But having said that, this concept of nodes of validation and um, a network of sort of checks and balances, I think becomes really interesting. And I think that there's technologies that have now come out as much more accepted in commonplace blockchain, artificial intelligence and machine learning that are now accelerating conversations that I think were really scary and difficult to have and, and a bit intractable. So to your point, as far as like legacy data, I think that there's some interesting ways to start sort of opening up the conversations and letting checks and balances happen. And I think, I mean, also like the MLC is going to do that, right? And I think it's interesting. It'll be interesting, you know, January 1st of 2021, like, gosh, what a year <laughs> to decide that you're going to build something. I do not envy the folks that are um, in charge of building the database around the Mechanical Licensing Collective. But um, that's going to be another check and balance. One of the things that we recommended um, and wrote some recommendations around is that um, there be some open protocols within the database for the mechanical licensing collective so that people, for example, could build applications on top of that. And so I, as an entrepreneur, could basically build a widget 
that um, makes checking the veracity of the information really automated and user-friendly and to sort of allow applications like that to be built on top. So I think that we are, I personally believe that, I mean, look at like Wikipedia, look at other ways of sort of checking and balancing incorrect information, IMDB. I think we're at a place where there's enough correct information and there's enough sort of automation that can happen where if we allow the connections and the protocols between these systems, I think a lot of that will sort of um, equal out. And I think that the last piece that's um, interesting is sort of uh, gamifying the concept is around sort of user or audience engagement and user generated information. And that's something that um, people love to do <laughs> It's you know, it's, it's free labor, but it's sort of that social recognition and gratification, social network, you know, gamifying it. So I think that there's also that piece, people care about liner notes and, yeah. you know, having being in a community of music geeks, there's a lot of people that for sure would give time to going down the rabbit hole and putting in, in the right information or putting in information that's not there on sort of who played, you know, the, the bass track or the saxophone solo or whatever on this or that track. Um, so yeah. I, think the, I think the solutions are out there. I think it's just about, you know, opening and connecting the ecosystem. That, th those are really strong points. And I think that you've, you've given me hope for something that I always <laughs> viewed as an intractable problem. It's true. It's true. Yeah, I hadn't thought about the implications of machine learning or AI and automation around solving those problems. You know, coming from um, the small thinking that's often associated with the, with the, especially the, the rights management or recorded music side of the business, um, I've always thought of it as a brute strength problem and not brute, not brute strength in terms of something that um, could be solved with algorithms. And um, that's actually very encouraging. And then the crowdsourcing component of it is, is fascinating as well. You combine that the gamification with the passion for music. And that does seem like a great path. So thanks for providing some optimism around something that. <laughs> hey, that we can all use a little bit of that. It's, 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 it's overwhelming, right? Like you start to think about, I mean, the Virgo in me, it, it just, you start to think about like all that bad data and whew, it's like overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been around those conference tables on, you know, in, in, in major label context, it seems insolvable sometimes. Um, yeah. So that's great. Um, well, thank you so much for your time and yeah, likewise. Uh, for sharing thank you. your insight. And um, I'll look forward to following the work and uh, joining the initiative and uh, seeing some really cool entrepreneurial um, ideas that get built on top of it. I think that's one of the more exciting parts. I think getting, getting artists paid correctly in a timely manner and then seeing what innovation can be built on top of it um, will be things to watch for the next couple of years. Thank you so much, Nicole Davies, and thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Remember that we're available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you can get podcasts from. Spotlight On is produced and edited by Craig Snyder. And a big thank you goes to Ant Taylor and the entire crew at Light. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit lyte.com. And please keep your feedback coming reach me at lp at light.com. Thank you for listening. Be safe and please stay in touch. Yeah.